We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. If you looked at your bulletin this morning, you'll find that we have moved on from the book of Esther, having completed the reading of that once again, and we're moving on to the book of Revelation this morning, Revelation chapter 1. Call special attention at the latter part of the chapter to verse 19, which is key to understanding really the whole outline of the, of the book. Uh, and uh, so I'll make a comment about that in a moment here. But beginning in Revelation chapter 1, we find here the Word of God says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which much must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. You may I say that does include you. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to, his, to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so really verse 19 is a key for understanding the outline, overall kind of picture of the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen, that is the vision which John just saw, the things which are, which are the letters which are we find here in beginning in chapter 2. And then the things which will take place after this, that is things of the end time, which we see later on in the book. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you, you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Thus concludes chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Luke chapter 6, please, if you would open your Bibles there, follow along with us. Variously uh, title our message this morning, The Fruitful and Stable Christian Life. But also I drew from this as I pondered it at the end of my study time that the Lord in this sermon teaches us how to respond to his sermon, or teaches us how to respond really to any sermon. And so we invite you to think about that subject matter as we consider it, starting in verse number 39 through 49, if God wills this morning, we will look at those verses. And it says, and verse 39, and he spoke a parable to them. That's why I stopped the previous message at this point, because it seems like there's a shift Uh, a change in the uh, material, uh, certainly in the kind of paragraph uh, structure. Uh, The Lord has just talked about not judging and uh, being generous in our uh, measure and uh, graciousness toward others, and we'll receive uh, likewise back. He taught us about loving our enemies and doing good to those who hate us and persecute us and so on. So we've got all that in the background of this. And then it says in 39, he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? And as I reflect on that relative to the context that we're looking at here, he's basically saying sort of indirectly, but sort of directly that the teachers of Israel, The shepherds of the nation have not been teaching this kind of stuff to the people. They've been teaching this kind of hard legalism, these kind of, you know, fastidious guidelines of, you know, not picking a little bit of grain as you walk along on the Sabbath or not healing on the Sabbath or not pulling an ox out of the the hole in the ground on the Sabbath, all that sort of stuff that they were doing and criticizing the Lord Jesus for Uh, what he was doing, and he's saying, look, they're basically blind. And if you're blind and they're blind, what's the the result going to be? 
Verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So do you want to be like them, or do you want to be like a better teacher? And why do you look, verse 41, at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, uh, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. The Lord's illustrations are certainly memorable, aren't they? I imagine somebody who is a gifted artist writing a cartoon that shows the fellow with the plank sticking out of his eye and the other guy with the little speck in his eye and the humor of that. The first one, though, is, is about a blind person trying to lead another blind person. Now, please, don't criticize and say, well, the Lord's making fun of blind people. He's not making fun of blind people whatsoever. It's far, far be it from the Lord to do that. Exodus 4.11, the Lord said to Moses, who made the seeing and the mute and the blind? Who made man's mouth, he said to Moses in that great passage that told Moses, look, don't make excuses. You go and do as God commands you to do. And in John chapter 9, verse number 3, not about uh, this exact topic per se, but notice what it says in John chapter 9. It's, it's actually quite... Interesting, similar. There was a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? So there's a physical blindness. Obviously, we're talking about spiritual blindness here, but physical blindness. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, that, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. It's not that the man didn't have enough faith. It's not that he was a bad person more than everybody else. It was that God planned, he made him that way in order to glorify himself through the healing of that blindness at the right time. God decided to create people the way they are so that his works might be revealed in them. But here what Jesus is saying is that one person without the capacity to see or perceive is not going to be able to lead or teach or guide another person of that same sort, one who's unable to see or or perceive. The spiritual teachers of Israel were exactly this. They weren't physically blind. The Lord is not criticizing physically blind people. These spiritual guides, these teachers, these shepherds of Israel, these priests, these Levites, 
these scribes, these Sadducees, these Pharisees were not suitable guides for them because they were blind. And uh, I guess it's pretty easy to probably pick on you know people today who who put themselves out as the guides of society, you know the high the high types and the teachers and the uh, the, the politicians that are leaders, you know what I'm saying? And you have to stop and ask yourself, are they really blind? And if they don't know the Lord, well, they're blind, aren't they? they? They don't see things clearly for what they are. They might be like the man who, in the midst of being healed by the Lord, says, I see men like trees walking. You know, I, he doesn't see quite clearly. And people don't see clearly if they don't know the Lord. They think they do, but then when they, you know, it's like when you go and get glasses for the first time and you put them on and you're like, oh, that's what the world looks like. Oh, that's different, isn't it? It's a totally different uh, thing than what you think before you were made able to see. So Jesus then moves to plain teaching from this parable. So a very short parable in verse 39, and he says, a disciple's not above his teacher. If you have a teacher who practices well, then you can learn much from him. But if you have a teacher that doesn't know his material well, then you will be uh, also like him and not know it very well. Uh, just comes to mind an illustration. I, I, I need to borrow my memory. Was it, uh, uh, Naomi, was it Brother uh, Andrew who was taught some language by a teacher who didn't actually know how to pronounce it properly? I read a book, yeah, it was, okay, John. So th this fellow is taught a language by a language teacher, I think in the UK maybe. And the teacher, after, the, after a long time of teaching, uh, embarrassingly comes to the student who is about to leave and go to the country where he needs to use that language and, and, and said, I, I really didn't know that language. I, I don't know how to pronounce it properly. Uh, and so he learned... He might have learned very well, but he didn't learn the right thing very well, did he? <laughs> Can you imagine learning Spanish but not knowing actually how to pronounce it? That would be quite an adjustment, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, so um, you'll be like him. And it, in, a, in such a case, it's only as you move to other teachers or self-study, in the scriptures in particular, I'm thinking, in self-study under God's spirit, then you would advance farther than your teacher. You know, and it's true that you can get blind spots from self-study. Uh, I caution people from just focusing only on self-study and theology because you can get a lot of blind spots that way. And I've seen that happen uh, over the course of, of, of you know, church history, but also in the modern times. But you can also get blind spots from teachers who have blind spots. I've experienced that as well. Teachers who have a certain focus, emphasis, or whatever, and they miss a few other key things. And you're like, oh, when you realize that, you're like, oh, man, I kind of missed a few important areas that I need to pick, on, pick up. So you need to pick your teachers carefully. The Lord is if effectively saying, and if all your teachers are the fair, these Pharisees or these Sadducees, you're going to be exceedingly limited in what you're properly able to understand about the works and ways of God. Now, the Lord then shifts a little bit again, but it's still related because you have blind leading the blind, you have teaching, uh, the teaching idea, and then it talks about this speck. 
and this plank idea. And so this is generally applicable, but I think it's specifically applicable to the blind teachers of Israel. Here they are saying, you know, look, this is what you got to do to please God. This is what you've got to do to be obedient. And in their lives, they're all full of dead men's bones, remember, and filth and in uncleanness and all of that sort of stuff. So what they're teaching is just totally off base. Remove sin from your own life before trying to expose sin in the lives of others. You know, you see a speck of sin in somebody's life and want to help him remove it, but if you have a plank in your own eye, it's going to be exceedingly difficult to assist. Uh, We had a situation of a problem with uh, one of our boy's eyes years ago, you might recall, and had to go and and uh, late at night in the uh, emergency room and have an eye look, guy look at him, and it was just a little tiny abrasion on the cornea. But can you imagine if the eye doctor that was looking at our son had no, you know, he had, you know, Coke bottle glasses and wasn't able to see anything. He wouldn't be able to help at all. So it'd be quite hard to be an effective assistant to somebody if you have that kind of situation going on. You'll be like the blind if you have a blank in your eye, you're you're functionally blind, or you'll be like the teacher who's less qualified than the student you're trying to teach. And so this is a generally applicable truth to everybody, not just teachers. Get yourself into a mode of clear-sightedness. Take the time, make the effort to do that. Shine the spotlight on your own life before pointing it at everyone else, okay? Make sure you're not presuming that you are better than you are. Now, you're going to ask me, hopefully, if you're tracking and paying attention, well, how can I make sure that I'm not better than I, than I am? How can I make sure that I'm shining the spotlight on myself and not focusing outward on others? Well, the way you do that is you look at the mirror of God's Word. You look at the mirror of God's Word. James tells us this. Uh, oh, here's another example. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. It says this. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And here it is and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. I guess this is even worse. Not just that you're shining the spotlight. You think you are the spotlight. Hmm. An instructor of the foolish, you think you are a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Do a little self-teaching here, a little reflexive teaching You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do you rob temples? Do you make your boasts in the law? Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Because of you, the scripture says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles as it is written. So focus on shining the light by way of the mirror of God's word on yourself, with your spouse and your family, with other brothers and sisters as time permits. You know, what I'm saying is you study the Word. You you take input from the Word. You do that with your family, 
with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with the church, with any group that you can, whenever the doors are open, be here so that you can learn the Word of God and be purified and strengthened in, uh, in holiness and not shining the light so much on others but on yourself. Now, the text can be misused also, though. Um, somebody could say, look, Pastor Matt, you have sin in your own life. What business do you have confronting me about sin in mine? Well, if, this, if you could take this to that extent, then, of course, no one could ever tell anyone else about an area of needed repentance. A pastor could not preach righteousness. A father could not lead his family members to repent of sins. Obviously, those are ridiculous. You can't take the text and stretch it to that awful extent. The text is rightly used if you see a person or if you are a person who finds it easier to see faults in others than you see in yourself. That is so, it's kind of weird, but it's so true that people can see faults in others far before they can see the fault in themselves. And this text would help you to slow down that tendency. It's rightly applied in everyone's life because it will help us to be more deliberate about confrontation. It will help us also to have mercy toward the person that we're speaking to if we're trying to help them with that speck in their eye. And suppose that we're talking about your relationship with your own child and you're trying to help your children uh, with some problems that they're having, with some foolishness that they're exhibiting. Do you remember those same specks, splinters, and boards that you had in your life at their age? You remember that? You had some foolishness back in the day, didn't you? (laughs) So have some compassion. Come alongside. We've been talking about raising children in this Sunday school series in weeks past, and one of the things that was very interesting to me is that a parent has to be one that's like over authority, but also alongside, beside. Because you and your growing daughter or son are together sinners. And after a little while, you'll both be adults, one younger, of course, and one older, but you'll both be adults, and if you're Christians, both struggling against sin in your life. Maybe you also need to remember some of the beams and logs that you still have even now today before you are so critical. All right, so that's kind of surrounding the idea of teaching, of helping others, of being a guide, blindness, limitations of, of teachers, and of, uh, of this you know, sin in your own life. But now we shift gears again to fruitfulness. Fruitfulness, spiritual fruitfulness. The illustration defining a tree by its fruit is simple, it's clear, it's convicting, and basically it's this, that every tree is known by its fruit. And building on that, the illustration goes in a couple of directions. A good tree does not bear bad fruit, a bad tree does not bear good fruit, Uh, and, you know, figs and grapes don't come from bramble bushes and thorns, all surrounding that 
44, you know, first part of verse number 44. Simply put, you know a tree by its fruit. That's it. Is that a good apple tree? You know, pastor, that apple tree that you have at your house, is that a good apple tree? I'd say it's a pretty good apple tree. It probably needs to be pruned a little bit more actively by its owner or steward, I should say. But uh, God saw to some of that pruning this past summer, whacked off a huge branch with that storm that we had. But uh, anyway, yeah, good fruit, all else being equal. You know, you wouldn't call a tree good if it's bearing bad fruit. Now, of course, you can imagine a situation where you have a generally good tree, that good fruit, but then some swarm of bugs comes along and attacks it. You don't blame the tree for the bugs, okay? Uh, that's not a strike against the tree itself, but uh, you get the point generally. The truth, unbelieving or secular lives do not produce godly conduct. Fleshly means cannot create spiritual outcomes. Same way, you know, people's conduct is like fruit. A, A good man produces good, an evil man produces evil. It doesn't matter how much the bad fruit guy claims that he's a good tree. Okay? He can talk and he can blab on and on and on, but if he's producing bad fruit, then he's a bad dude. Okay? The fruit produced invariably shows what is in the heart. Listen to what they say and then watch where their feet take them. Okay? That was a adage from one of my professors at seminary. So, you know, so thinking about, again, it's easy to think about other people and think, yeah, that's right, you tell it, Pastor, just like it is. These, these bad people have all this bad fruit. But what about the stuff coming out of your mouth? That is you, you know. What about those bad thoughts running around in, he- in your head? Those are you. That evil attitude is you. It's your fault. God did not put those things in your mind. If you care about the things of God, you will repent of your critical spirit, of your lustful thoughts, of your gossip, of your anger, and and the like. Repenting is good fruit, actually. Repenting is how a Christian shows that they're bearing good fruit. That's what a Christian person does. Okay. So out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, or out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So I'm just going to leave that subject for for now and go on to the third section of the notes, which is in verses 46 to 49. I'll try to put this all together. This section we might call spiritual steadfastness or a strong spiritual foundation. Today I've elected to call it spiritual stability, spiritual stability. It's a fitting conclusion to Jesus' sermon on the level place or sermon on the plateau, or if you think it's the same, the sermon on the mount. And it has a stern warning as to what happens if you ignore what he says. It also offers a blessing if you pay good attention to what he says. So if you want to be sure about your spiritual life, If you want to have a strong and stable base upon which to build, if you want confidence in judgment, then you need to be a hearer and a doer of the word. Okay, You're probably already thinking of the passage that I thought of in 
the book of James, the gospel of James, so to speak. James chapter 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I think he's building right on what the Lord taught in the Sermon on the Level Place and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. There's bad fruit coming out of the mouth. You watch that bad fruit. It comes from a bad spot in your heart. It needs to be trimmed out by sanctification if you're a believing person in Christ Jesus. Even under the law of Moses, people recognize this truth. Uh, in Romans 2.13, it says, It is not the hearers of the law who are justified, but what? The doers of it. Now, I'll add the normal disclaimer here. Obviously, we're not teaching, nor Paul was teaching, that you get saved by doing good works. It's the person who is empowered by God from above who can do those works. No one is empowered to do them unless God uh, wills or God bears them again, gives them new life from heaven, we'll say. This prevents us from thinking that we can justify ourselves, okay? But it's still the case. You're not just if you're not doing the works of the law under the Old Testament system. Again, it doesn't mean you got saved by doing the works of the law. Just like today, you don't get saved by doing good works. But guess what? If you're a justified person, you will do what? Good works, okay? So there's a way, a sense in which we can say, look, if you're not doing anything good, there's no good fruit coming out, then we know there's a bad root in there somewhere. Now, Jesus here talks about two kinds of people. I've given you a little chart there that actually shows a few more different varieties, but two main kinds. There are those who come to Jesus and hear his sayings and do them, and then there's the person who hears and does nothing. Okay, so I've listed those, the number one and two in the chart there. There's, they, somebody comes and hears and does, you know, so I have yes all the way across. Uh, they're a genuine Christian. They have a strong foundation. There's others, number two, who come and they hear, but they don't do. No foundation. Professing Christian, perhaps, but no foundation. Unsaved. Number three, you could have people who come, but they don't really hear or pay attention uh, and certainly don't do what the Lord says. They're unsaved. No foundation. Then there's somebody who doesn't bother with Jesus at all. Doesn't come, doesn't hear, doesn't do. Unsaved again, no foundation. And then there are those who don't come and don't hear the Lord, but they might do some of the religious works that the Lord has commanded, like do good unto others and you know, as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule and that sort of thing. This is a kind of person that's in Romans 2.26. Uh, I'm not saying that this person is going to end up any better in the end. Uh, they're unsaved. They have no foundation, but they, they have something good about them. It says in verse uh, Romans 2.26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? 
So there's a way in which there are some people who, are, you've seen these people, they don't have anything to do with the Lord, nothing to do with church, but they do good stuff. They're philanthropic, they're helpful, they want to be kind. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? In the context of total depravity, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the fact that God implanted in each person the part of our basic design machinery here, if you will, our computational pre-programming is that we have a conscience. And we know the law of God, generally speaking. Every person knows that. There's something in you that is operating. There's information in a conscience, a, a accusing or defending function that God has put, and that may be uh, you know, not damaged as much as somebody else is damaged. You know, God has placed some goodness in people, and that goodness has not been totally stamped out perhaps by a poor upbringing, bad friends, degraded society, failed education, and the like, but rather they have been taught good things. Maybe the Christian influence on society has seeped into their life a little bit and helped them as well with that. Okay, I don't want to make a huge point about this, but just to help you to see, when, when you say, well, where, where does the good things in the world come from if people aren't believers? Well, that's where they come from. They come from God, Okay. God implanted those things in there. And they might say, no, I don't need God to do good. Actually, you do need God to do good. You know why? Because if you don't have God, you don't exist. Okay? And you must have him. He, he's the one that... Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, does it not? Every good thing in this world is a result of God's goodness. Every evil thing is a result of sin and degradation and death and destruction. Well, back to the text, you have the Lord, Lord kind of person. That's number two in my chart there. He professes to call Jesus Lord, but it's not busy about doing what the Lord asks him to do. He honors the Lord with his mouth, but his heart is not with the Lord. And then there are these others I mentioned who have maybe no, no connection to God at all. They do decent things, um, but they're not doing them because they've heard the Lord or read him. They're doing them because God has placed that goodness into their hearts. But back to the illustration about these houses or these buildings, verse uh, 48. If somebody comes and hears what Jesus says, here's what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. How many of you have been involved or had as an owner a structure or home built on a property or been involved in that activity? I was as a young, very young person. Obviously, this brother back here has. He's built a lot of things. If you were to just be able to look at ground level at a structure for the, for this, uh, for the timeline in which it's built, just your, your eyes are at ground level you would see nothing for weeks because to put the foundation, you dig down, you know, say four feet down or if you're going to just a foundation and crawl space, but maybe you've got to dig eight, nine, ten feet down if you're going to put a full basement. And so you're there looking at ground level and you see nothing. And the, but you see this, you know, caterpillar machines coming and you see the, 
uh, cement truck. You know, well, you see the guys coming to form up the concrete, and you see the cement trucks and all this activity, and you're like, I don't see anything. What's going on in there? They're pouring a bunch of stuff into the earth. Well, they're building a foundation. They have to have a foundation. You know how, how heavy those foundations are? You know how heavy concrete is? A cubic yard of concrete, how much does it weigh? A cubic yard of concrete, can you imagine how much that weighs? And a foundation is, I mean, I don't know how many cubic yards, say, a typical house would be in terms of a foundation. Some of you probably know or have a, you know, can calculate that or whatever, but tremendous, massive amount of work in order to make sure that that house just doesn't blow over when the next, you know, polar vortex comes into town, right? You, you spend a lot of time building that foundation, and that's like listening to what the Lord Jesus says and doing it. The imagery here becomes especially instructive when harsh weather arrives. The guy who heard the word of the Lord and did nothing, listen, is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation. He's like, you know, all, all that stuff. It takes a long time. It's a waste of time. I just want to get the house up, you know, stick a few sticks in the ground and start building the stick walls and put the roof on it and be done with it. You know, got a happy little house now. Saved a lot of money compared to that guy that was digging in the ground all that time. Ha ha. And immediately when the storm came, the stream comes, the floods arise, and the house falls down immediately. During the easy times, both houses seem fine. They're livable. They keep you warm and dry. But when a storm comes and brings winds and floods with it, then the structure will be tested and the real character of that foundation will become evident. Likewise, likewise, your life, if it's been full of hearing God's word but not doing it, you will fall and be ruined. Ruination will come when you stand before God. You do know that you will stand before God, don't you? Every person is appointed to die and then the judgment. Both small and great will stand before God and be judged. There's no, uh, what do you call those, uh, excuse, uh, excused absences. There's no excused absences at this judgment. Both small and great will stand there. Revelation 20.12 says that. Search deep inside your mind, your heart, or whatever you want to call it, and see, too, if you can sense that you are not ultimate. This earth and its inhabitants, in fact, the entire cosmos, is not all that is. It took someone to design you. It took someone to build and kickstart the universe. Kickstart, that caused me to think of a motorcycle illustration. I know you probably don't kickstart your motorcycle now, but bear with me, please. You know, There is a person who designed and built that bike. And if you come upon a bike that's sitting there in a parking spot and it's you know, idling away, guess what? You know that there was somebody who designed it, you know that there was somebody who built it, and you know that somebody put gas in it, and you know somebody kick-started it. We know that about ourselves in this, in this universe. We know we didn't come here by accident or some, you know, 
primordial slime, as they call it, and all that sort of thing, and amino acids and lightning and all that sort of stuff. Foolishness. You are a designed creation by God. And you are accountable to him. You will face your maker, the scripture tells us. Now, I know you won't know that unless the Bible tells you, right? You can't know that by just coming into the world. You're, you're told that, you know, if your parents are faithful, they'll tell you, you know, from way back in human history, God met with Adam and Eve. And that knowledge has been passed down to us. And there's a Bible that tells us all about that. And here it is. And so you get that information derivatively over all those generations from back in past history. Do you think Cain and Abel didn't think that they were made by God derivatively? Their parents saw God in person. And you know what? They're your parents too. You you go back far enough with enough G's, great, 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 all the way back, you'll get to Adam and Eve. You'll get to Noah. Noah walked with God. Noah saw the flood judgment on the earth. These things have been passed down to us, and we think, eh, you know, science has got it all figured out, or whatever, you know. Not so, my friends. We're accountable to God. On the other hand, a person who has heard the word and trusted in God through Christ and made a decent effort to be obedient won't be shaken. The judgment will go basically well for that person. Person number one that we've talked about, uh, the, the person who didn't build properly, that's the foolish person. The person that did build properly, that's the wise person. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are like this. Uh, there are foolish theologians. They spend a lot of time reading the Bible or studying what others have said about the Bible, but they can't get to ever figuring out how to obey what they've learned or apply what they've read. Christians, not just theologians, Christians can be foolish. We can pass our eyes over the text of Scripture, check off our box on our Bible reading schedule, and we never get to actually figuring out what do I have to do today to obey what God has told me in what I've read. Pastors can be foolish too. Maybe a pastor doesn't spend enough time in the Bible or maybe focuses on other materials. Maybe he downloads his sermon from a website so it's a warmed-over, uh, reused meal on Sunday morning. <laughs> maybe then he's nothing more than a speechwriter or a counselor, but not a serious follower of the Lord. But on the other hand, of course, there are wise Christians and wise theologians and wise pastors who take seriously what they read, what they hear from the Lord that way, and they apply it and they put it into practice. As I close this morning, just another illustration, if I may, a fruitful, strongly rooted tree is a good picture of what the Christian life should look like. There was a uh, wild fig tree in South Africa that was discovered to have a tap root that was nearly 400 feet deep. Now, I'm sure that wasn't a 400-foot-tall fig tree. Fig trees don't generally grow that tall that I know, but you just think about that. One winter rye patch of grass had a root system of nearly 387 miles of roots. If you hear and do the words of God, you will be like such a tree. 
you know, or such a plant like that winter ryegrass that's so well known to have that deep and, you know, how do you want to say, huge root structure. Contrast it with a few years ago when we had the, those windstorms. That was in 2017. And some of those pine trees just fall over, and you see the root ball, you know, just a nice round root ball laying sideways on the ground, and there's not really, there's no huge tap root or anything like that going down there. What kind of person do you want to be? Somebody with a 400-foot tap root into the Word of God? Or do you want to be the kind of person that just kind of, you know, clings on a few little promises on the surface, and when the wind comes, you know, then you're crying because you don't have a real rooted life. With this kind of approach to the Christian life, you will be a strongly rooted, well-watered, leafy, fruitful, very vibrant, alive tree. Your way will prosper. That's what Psalm 1 says. The guy who meditates in the Word of God day and night, who doesn't walk with the fools or according to the counsel of scorners and all of that, but he's like a tree planted by the river of water. Always has a source of nourishment, always bright and vibrant and alive. And then what you, what you set your hands to do will prosper. Why? Because you set your hands to do the right things. You know, you can set your hands to do a lot of things and, and they can be useless because they're not an, an honoring to God. If you want this kind of life, the only way is to follow the right teacher, not some blind guy. The Lord Jesus is the right teacher. Bear good fruit in your life and actually listen to that divine teacher and do what he says. In response to his sermon, or any sermon for that matter, do not presume to fix everybody else's problems. Rather, carefully consider your own ways and the ways of your family and ask yourself if you are bearing good fruit or not and consider whether you are really hearing and doing or whether you're just hearing a little bit, and that will profit your soul. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to listen to your word, to do something about it. If we aren't looking at the mirror closely enough, help us to do that. If we're not shining the spotlight on ourselves or trying to shine it on everybody else, if we have some imperceived blind spot, Would you please work by your spirit and each one here today in the hearing of these words that those areas would be exposed, corrected, repented, confessed, improved, Lord, so that we might live in a way that is very honoring in your sight. Oh, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.